to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. My name is Paul Reesmanel. Hello, everybody. My name is Eric Glenn. And joining us from San Francisco via Skype, it's Jennifer Waits. Thanks for joining us today, Jennifer. We have a lot of news to cover in the world of community radio, college radio, community podcasting, all these great forms of uh, community media. So that's what we're going to do on uh, this episode, episode number 109 of Radio Survivor. Jennifer, you're, you're our college radio watcher. That is your beat. That is your passion. You publish tours of radio stations on our website, radiosurvivor.com, as well as every week you publish news about college radio every Friday there at radiosurvivor.com. And I know you've got a bunch of things to uh, catch us up with. Before we get started, though, I have a little bit of follow-up. Two weeks ago, on episode 107, we presented... A very special rebroadcast. A special rebroadcast. Well, we, <laughs> we kind of put together two interviews that were done uh, more than a year apart, talking with Barry and Channy Peters of Bainbridge Community Broadcasting, which is a community podcasting organization in Bainbridge Island, Washington yeah, State. Ba- Bainbridge is a small community with uh, on an island in Washington. That, yeah. and, and instead of founding a small radio station, they realized that podcasting suited their needs the best, but they opened the doors to the community to collectively podcast, which was a concept that made perfect sense to us here on Radio Survivor. It's a lot like community radio stations, but uh, as far as we know, they did it first. Yeah, to, to really approach podcasting like community radio. Yeah. And we've received a lot of feedback. It's interesting because this is a rebroadcast, but it was the first time we kind of put the two interviews together. The first one was uh, Barry and Chani introducing the idea to us. Yeah, single digit radio survivor days. <laughs> Indeed. And then I had the opportunity to go to Bainbridge Island and drop in and say hello, where Barry was able to give me a tour of their studios that they had then and, and give us this follow-up on how things were going. And, and, and then I kind of put it a little bit in perspective, I hope. We just heard from Barry moments before starting the podcast here, telling us that he was very happy to hear uh, the, the episode number 107, um, but noted that he and Chani are leaving. They founded it, but they're moving away to Denver to uh, be closer to family. But luckily, there are some very able folks coming on board to take over Bainbridge Community Broadcasting. Now, see, here is the power of community over whatever the opposite of the community is. Because when you when you think of a radio station being founded, you know that the people who founded it um, aren't going to take it with them to the grave. It, it gets passed down to the community. And yet with podcasting, you know, how, how often do we think about podcasts, um, you know, changing hands, like yeah, it's being a pretty passed along to the yeah. next person. But because it's community podcasting, of course, like they have f- physical facilities. They have, they already have a, a buy-in from so many people who live there. And and so wonderful to think that something that they started uh, doesn't doesn't end with their participation in that particular neighborhood, that it keeps going. Yeah, and they've moved into a new facility. It's something which the Bainbridge uh, Island yeah, uh, Community Podcasting the Bainbridge Network Artisan has. Resource Network. So they've moved into this shared facility. It grows for the arts, and they're now part of it. So called Barn, and so that's wonderful to hear. I'm I'm actually hoping I can make the trip back up, or maybe Eric and I can go together for a field trip. Ooh. Uh, up to Bainbridge Island and check that out. But he also mentions that as a result of our, our uh, rebroadcast, episode 107, you know, he had someone contact him to ask specifically about uh, community podcasting, and they had a nice hour-long conversation. So I think the idea is starting to take root, is starting to grow, and, and I hope that you know that's something we're always able to do here. Uh, on Radio Survivor, that we're able to share some ideas that because when someone's actively pursuing something, it's difficult to also sort of evangelize for it or to spread the word because you're you got your head down, you're working. And I hope when we find out about these things, we can we can share it and then maybe synthesize, spread the word at the very least and help make these connections. Yeah, one of my favorite things is how uh, they they're doing uh, they're working with high school students in Bainbridge. So it's a, the community podcasting network is also integrated with the studies and projects of high school students. Absolutely. That's, and that's a Jennifer Waits gold star. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, I always love that. And I was, I'm also thinking since I visited Denver, 
maybe last year. Um, I'm also thinking of all the amazing community radio and low power FM stations that perhaps <laughs> they will connect with in Denver. Denver is not lacking in, in radio opportunities. Oh yeah. There's a, a lot of really cool stuff going on. So hopefully this just keeps growing um, in all these different ways. And Denver's a great example of something I think we see in community and public broadcasting, which is that a rising tide raises all boats. Hmm. It's not about competition. I know when Low Power FM first began being licensed, now 17 years ago at the beginning of the 2000s and again in 2013, there are always some folks working in existing stations a little worried that all of a sudden there's going to be these stations stealing their listeners, uh, siphoning away funding and, and underwriters. But in fact, what we see is that healthy communities have many stations yeah. and that you create this ecosystem of community media. The more, the more choice, the more, the more good sounding choice I have on my radio dial, the more often I keep my radio on. As a listener, exactly. Yeah, as and a it, listener. And as a producer, then it provides you these additional opportunities. Never mind also opportunities for stations or projects that, that are community media-based uh, to collaborate. And I think that that's true here in Portland, Oregon, where we've seen an explosion, but it's also true in cities like Minneapolis, St. Paul, and around the country where the explosion of community radio or, or community podcasting or, or other sorts of community media projects tends, they tend to support each other, even if they're not officially, you know, sort of collaborating, uh, it, it grows the overall appetite for this sort of media in a community. So I just want to throw that, that kind of pitch in, but we also, we heard, uh, from, uh, the station manager of a radio station in Oregon, uh, where they are beginning to work on community podcasting. Um, so we hope to talk to them soon on the show as well and continue to grow this idea and think about these ways in which uh, audio media can be put to work in all these different ways and not exclusive. It doesn't have to be yeah. podcasting instead of radio, radio instead of podcasting, but, but that it can really be tailored to the needs of a, and, and, and the circumstances of a particular community. One of the one of the funny things about the first 10 years of podcasting is with the dominance of one platform and the the charts that that platform designed. The, the, yeah, the Apple podcasting charts, yeah, iTunes. All, which was a wonderful thing for its time. There's no uh, podcasts near me button. You cannot, yeah. you cannot find out what the top 10 podcasts are in the city in which you live. And so, so many... Um, so many beneficial niche ideas are not being as amplified as they might be if 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 they designed that one button. But and so it's it's really changed how uh, this entire generation of founding podcasters have thought about building audiences and creating their work. You know, nobody nobody in their right mind would want to be you know a podcast that only one city listens to because you really would never uh, be able to live that American podcasting dream of. Uh, <laughs> Of, of, of but I think we're seeing more and more yeah. public stations and community stations and even uh, independent podcasters think in those terms, especially when they have maybe another media outlet that's affiliated. So they have a local media outlet, whether it's a radio station or maybe uh, an alt weekly or even an event space or another sort of nonprofit to sort of rely upon so that they can help get the word out and connect more directly with that local community because not everybody just like in, in college community radio needs to, or does put that big listener number, download number ratings number at the forefront of everything they do. There are other ways to mm -hmm. measure what you do or to to try and uh, assess the outcomes, and they can be action-oriented and communitarian, um, not saying that having a big audience it's, it's, sucks. It's really nice <laughs> to have a national or international audience for your project, but so many good ideas uh, that are in people's heads or could be in people's heads today, podcasts that could be started uh, tomorrow that that would really only be the beneficial to the community in which these people live they wouldn't be they wouldn't be outside of that town uh they wouldn't have the the same value outside of that town those podcasts all need to exist and then uh 
isn't it nice when people work together on them, listen to each other's podcasts? Uh, it's it's a it's a nice thing to, to to dream on. Well, let us know what you think. Uh, you know, we just mentioned that we've been getting a lot of feedback, uh, mostly via email. It's wonderful to hear from listeners and readers of Radio Survivor. Drop us a line, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Is there a project we should know about, or do you just want to give your feedback? We love to read it on the air, or you could record it yourself and uh, local, do it on, local, on your app. Oh, sorry, local podcasts. Is there a podcast that you're aware of yeah. that is only for the city in which it is recorded and not outside of that place? Um, those things are really interesting to me and, and difficult to to find since they're not charting. Yep. So drop us a line, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. You mentioned international audience. Mm-hmm. So Jennifer, the radio station where you volunteer, where you do a radio show, um, is going majorly international in the next couple of weeks. Can you tell us a little bit more of what's going on at KFJC? Yeah, actually, as we're recording this, I'm I'm keeping an eye on whether or not they've started their broadcast from Iceland today. So KFJC decided that they wanted to go to Iceland. And, and we're talking about a college <laughs> station in, in the Bay Area. Yeah, Foothills yep. College. At Foothill College. Um, Foothill singular. College. Singular. It, singular Foothill. It's in the Foothills. Um, it's a community college um, south of San Francisco. And the station has actually done a number of these international live remote broadcasts. Um, it's sort of an outlier. I don't really know of other stations that that do this sort of thing. And today and tomorrow, we'll be broadcasting from a two-day underground Iceland music festival that KFJC helped put together with a local magazine. So it's all underground Iceland artists. Is that a local um, magazine, local to Iceland, or local to uh, the valley, uh, the Silicon Valley? Local to Iceland. <laughs> um, so I think I think the magazine was sort of their eyes and ears to help connect with underground artists wow. in Iceland, um, because obviously planning a festival from California that's taking place in Iceland is a little bit challenging to do. So parachute uh, festivaling, yeah. Yeah, so they they teamed up um, and found a venue, and there are 10 artists performing, looks like nine, I think someone just dropped out, Um, but a variety of artists, you know, from electronic to ambient to metal to sort of a surf, I think a surf sludge band. Oh, wow. Surf in Reykjavik. I know. And... And so KFJC is going to be broadcasting it live over FM in the San Francisco Bay Area and streaming over the internet and then live streaming video um, as well. So that that's mm. the, the 15th and 16th. So before this podcast will air, but it'll be the sounds will be archived on the KFJC website for uh-huh. two weeks. Ah, so for two weeks afterwards. So folks will still have a chance to hear it at kfjc.org. Is there a name for this festival? Um, there are like a couple different names. Uh, <laughs> we we were calling it Live from the Icelandic Underground. Um, not bad. But there's also a name um, that's the name of the magazine, which I'm not sure if I can pronounce correctly. Um, I'm, I'm getting used to the Icelandic characters um but it's sort of a that the name of the magazine and kfjc um have been showing up in posters for the event too so so yeah that's happening and then the team is going to stay on or they're going to stay overseas and travel to liverpool um so the following week uh which will be september 22nd and 23rd kfjc will be broadcasting from the Liverpool International Festival of Psychedelia, which is a wide-ranging festival featuring psychedelic bands from all over the world. Um, And that's a much longer festival day, so I think the broadcast might start in California as early as 5 in the morning for that. It's a great way to wake up. I know. Much better than, than just hearing the bad news. Let's hear some psychedelia from Liverpool. I know. Yeah, and the bands are from all over the world. So, um, you know, bands from the United States and all over Europe, South America. Um, so, so yeah, this is all top of my mind um, because I always enjoy 
watching, there's something really exciting about watching and hearing people, you know, even during the setup, um, you know, and seeing the video Hmm. begin at these festivals and, and realizing it's actually working, (laughs) you know, because there's a lot that goes into it, a lot of things that can go wrong. So, I mean, it's always, we are jaded here in 2017, but the, the internet is still a miracle. It's, it's really amazing. <laughs> yes, pre-internet, this would have been very expensive at the very least. Yeah, prohibitively not, expensive yeah, for complicated a to pull off community yeah. station, to, let right. alone the travel cost, but just the that the ISDN international waters, like, oy vey. So what is it about KFJC that folks there are so motivated to do these international trips and broadcasts. Like, this is unusual. What what makes them think that they, one, that they could even pull it off, right? And then two, to, to bear down and take the time yeah. and get to the cel- money together to, celebrate to do it. celebrate independent music with the, uh, such an expenditure. Yeah, well, I think, you know, KFJC has been doing remote broadcasts for a really long time. And I think, I think the first one was from South by Southwest, um, in Aust- in Austin, Texas, back in 1994. Wow, um, which <laughs> back was when like South by Southwest was South by Southwest, but it was yeah. indie. And it sounds like that you know they might have teamed up with public radio and borrowed their satellites for that one. So I think you know for a really long time, people at KFJC have been interested in doing these very ambitious technical projects, um, and and the station's really been blessed with with people who have expertise in, in these types of things and who are willing to, you know, almost do the impossible sometimes. Um, at one point we were going to broadcast from a festival, I think it was in Morocco. Um, and it ended up falling apart, um, you know, due to the festival falling apart. But Mm. I remember hearing the conversations about how they were going to broadcast from this very remote desert location and, and people were up for the challenge, you know, <laughs> like we'll, we'll figure it out. And I think another station might've been approached to do it initially. And they were like, yeah, you know, we need to get KFJC involved because uh, they'll be able to figure it out. So, so if there's a station out there, if there are people at a station out there, uh, hoping to travel overseas, it sounds like the advice is, uh, start small <laughs> or talk to KFJC. Well, That's talk the advice. To KFJC. But do, yeah. do, but you know, start with, start with a broadcast in your community pull that one off and then and then and then you know, look at a map and and Grow from make there. the circle a little wider and then you eventually you'll make it to Iceland. Well Jennifer I'm I'm really hoping you'll be able to connect us with some of the folks working on this at KFJC for future episodes so they can share a little bit of their experience and expertise cuz because it's exciting to think that stations can do this and do it on a the kind of budget that's within reach for a community or college station. Right, that's not an yeah. an iHeart Radio kind of budget, but it's on something that that is really doable. And and the just the ideas and can uh, start flowing through my head the dreams of how um, communities and stations and organizations globally can collaborate in a way uh, that that can increase this understanding through things like music, right? Which which interpret very well. Um, internationally. And I think you mentioned you didn't know if other stations were doing international collaborations. I know that uh, WFMU in Jersey City, New Jersey, of course. every year uh, broadcasts from the Primavera Sound Festival, I think it's called, in Barcelona, Spain. And yes, they've, they've been, been doing, doing that, that a long recently. time. Yeah, that, and they've been doing that year after year. I, I did not catch it this year, but I have caught uh, previous years. Yeah. Uh, both, the, And they also have had uh, streaming video, I think, in previous years. They also it's have- always exciting. Uh, WFMU has up on the free music archive incredible uh, just track by track by track by track by track so much great uh, Balkan music that I know is local to to their area it's it's an international genre that's the the but the festival's happening right there in in somewhere near New York but uh, there's so much to be done in your community to uh, to share the music uh, a little broader to use your station and the expertise and the resources to 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 share the music uh, a little farther than just the room where it's, and some where it's of, happening. And you know some of what has inspired KFJC is thinking about some of the bands that that often aren't making it out to the United States. Right. So it's harder um, to travel now. A number of years ago, uh, we broadcast from Tokyo 
and that was largely the reason was um, KFJC put together um, an underground music festival in Tokyo so that some of these Japanese bands who, some of them were bands that KFJC already loved and, you know, they just don't tend to make it out to the States. And so they wanted to do this festival so that they could bring that music to our listeners, which is pretty amazing. So I think some somewhat of the same idea with the Iceland event. And so uh, folks can listen into the archives of the live from the Icelandic Underground Festival over at kfjc.org. And you can look forward to hearing uh, the Liverpool International Festival of Psychedelia also at kfjc.org. Jeez, don't touch that. Uh, that happened September 22nd and 23rd. And the archives will be online for two weeks afterwards. Correct, Jennifer? Yep. And the video you can only see live. So. Oh, wow. You have to, you have to, you have to tune in for the video. You have yes. to start early in the morning to, to uh, be able to Luckier jump over committed. the time zones if you're, uh, if you're here in the Americas. If you're in Europe, it should be right during the normal time of day for you. Mm-hmm. It's all at kfjc.org. This is Radio Survivor. We are the sound of strong communities. I'm Paul Reismandel. With me is Jennifer Waits uh, on the line on Skype via, from San Francisco. And also Eric Klein. Hello, everybody. And we're running down some interesting news uh, going on across community radio, podcasting, college radio, and uh, community media. Of course, if you have any comments, um, you'd like to tell us about a station you know that does some kind of great international project that we ought to amplify and bring to a larger audience, let us know. Drop us a line. It is podcast at Radio Survivor. Dot com. And uh, Jennifer, you also have some news about, uh, it's unfortunately, the, the kind of bad news we have to report every so often uh, about a college radio station in Rhode Island. Yeah, WBRU. Um, and this is this unusual category of college radio. It It's a commercially licensed FM college radio station, um, WBRU, that is owned by Brown Broadcasting Service, which is actually a nonprofit sort of loosely affiliated with Brown University. So it's it's been a college radio station, but the license has been held by this separate nonprofit, even though it's a commercial station. And and we really don't have too many of these stations like this left anymore. Um, earlier this year, we saw a University of Virginia related commercial station sell its license to a local commercial radio group. And, and so at WBRU, um, opted to sell their license to the educational media foundation, um, $5.63 million. Hmm. And this is in Providence, Rhode Island. And although the sale hasn't been approved by the FCC yet, um, starting on September 1st, those, that frequency is now airing material from from EMF in the form of their K-Love, um, which is religious kind of contemporary music programming. It's a religious station. And and so they're they're airing music from K-Love while um while they wait for the sale to go through. And hmm. the proceeds from this will go towards more of a digital focused organization that Brown Broadcasting Service will continue. So they'll continue to have online broadcasts and podcasting, um, but they just won't have this FM signal anymore. Um, They've been functioning largely as an alternative rock station um, for the city of Providence. So uh, they've been quite popular. And, you know, from what I've seen, um, it seems like listeners are not, not happy about this particular turn of events. Um, but it feels like we have fewer and fewer of these large commercial college radio stations anymore. Um, and, and it's kind of sad to me because it, it's such a unique part of college radio. Now, in this particular case, Jennifer, you mentioned that the station was owned by sort of an independent organization that's affiliated, uh, with Brown university, but not actually owned by Brown University. Because, I mean, much of the time when we hear about a college radio station going away, it's usually a non-commercial license. 
you know, again, often sold to a public radio outfit or or a um, classical a, music or, or or Christian or religious yeah. radio radio outlet, um, and and sometimes it often happens without much input from students or other stakeholders, um, you know, and and it's sort of uh, a fait accompli by the time. Uh, the rest of the uh, university or college knows about it, but in this particular case, it doesn't. That doesn't seem to have happened. Um, no, yeah, and in fact, um, there were administrators at Brown who were sort of encouraging them, I think, to rethink it. You know, early on. Um, so it's the separate nonprofit is run by alum, alumni, and students, and the station is ostensibly student run. So this was, you know, largely a student decision huh. to sell this license, which was also the case at um, WUVA WUVA um, at University of Virginia earlier this year. Very similar situation where it was students and alums who were making the decision to sell a commercial FM license. Jennifer, I don't know if, how much of the details of how this station was run uh, prior to this announcement of the sale, you know. But I I know from talking with you about other college radio stations that it is often possible for them, uh, even when they are commercial stations run professionally, uh, to have opportunities for students uh, to, to, to either intern or even work at the station uh, for them to learn. Uh, learning labs, uh, you know, for-profit radio stations as learning labs for students, which is kind of a something that we can uh, we can get behind here, at Radio Survivor. Was, was well, this and this case? and this seems to be a very student a student-run station. Hmm. Um, Wuva in Virginia had, although um, it was managed ostensibly by students and um, and the nonprofit, uh, they had professional people running the station and professional DJs, but at W were paid. Yeah. Yeah. But at WBRU, um, that's not my impression. Yeah. And, and it's something which you noted to us before, and you've noted, uh, in your writing at uh, radiosurvivor.com that, uh, this is a loss to the community as well, because this apparently this station has been around a long time and as sort of alternative rock and modern rock have, evolved as a genre was responsible for introducing a lot of uh, bands to the Providence area, to the Providence airwaves and listeners are uh, sad to see it leave the the air. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a powerhouse. So it, you know, people are definitely talking about this and I'm wishing that something could have been done. And, and we've known for a while that they were shopping the license and that they were considering a sale, Um, uh, you know, but clearly, the board and the people running the station were not moved by, by the people who had different opinions um, about the future. Well, so, it's, it's tough to run a commercial station. This is a perspective. I think it's often for folks who are in non-commercial uh, broadcasting don't always realize um, in part because of the way the commercial radio industry has become structured in the last uh, 20 years. And so if you're an independent commercial radio station, which as far as I can tell is effectively what WBRU is, um, it's a tough market for you because you're getting by on advertising. And and I would suspect, though I don't know, that a station like WBRU does not need to make the kind of income or profit that your typical commercial station owned by either a large company like iHeartRadio or even a small regional uh, owner would need to to bring in. At the same time, though, all of those stations have a certain advantage because mostly on your radio dial, uh, it's rare to find an independently owned local radio station, especially on the FM dial. More likely, they are owned by a larger company that will own two, three, or more stations in your market, which gives them an advantage because they can have an ad sales staff selling across lots of different shows. There's a certain efficiency there. They can package up ads so that they can say, oh, we'll sell you a package of ads across all of these stations at a rate that might be per station lower than what WBRU could be able to sell it for. Um, But because you're a commercial station and that's how you're going to make your money as opposed to through other sorts of fundraising, um, you're still competing 
right? <laughs> with all of those other stations, you're competing with Cumulus, with iHeartRadio, yeah. and, and, and et cetera. And see previous episodes of the Radio Survivor program where we've talked about uh, what a tough road to hoe those giant uh, exactly. consolidated media corporations are currently having in 2017, uh, uh, 20 years after the 1996 Telecommunications Act, 20 plus years mm-hmm. after the the uh, floodgates were opened to uh, radio consolidation. Uh, it, you know the as you just uh, you as as you have taught me, Paul. The um, the price of the ads have gone way well, down. Well, they they pressed yeah by by you know initially what this what these large conglomerates were able to do is sort of find efficiency, which means that they were able to combine stations and cut down cut the costs, cut but, staff, and cut local. Uh, Local service, Local et cetera. But if everyone's doing that, you know, because the, what the advantage is, of course, it means profits go up. But if everyone in the market is doing that, if all your competitors are doing that, eventually uh, somebody's going to say, well, we'll get an advantage by cutting the cost of the advertising uh, because we're making such great profits. But it's a sort of race to the bottom in that yeah. case. And, and as bottom is where so we are. Because we've talked about cumulus. Um, yeah. I, I forget uh, how many episodes it's been since we last visited the uh, sad story of uh, Cumulus Radio, which is the second biggest yeah. giant media company that we've talked about. Well, and sort of as a testament to all of that, it's interesting that the entity that's buying WBRU is a nonprofit. Um, I assume that Caleb is a nonprofit. Yeah, yeah, yeah they EMF are. EMF is a nonprofit. Uh, so, and they are asking the FCC to change the um, designation of the station to a non-commercial. <laughs> so, um I guess, you know, they must not have had takers, people interested, even though they could have sold the license to a commercial entity, um, the people who were interested in the license were, you know, was another nonprofit. Well, it's interesting because, frankly, $5.6 million is a lot of money. Um, but I don't know the Providence market very well. A Providence is not a large market. It's not the size of, say, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C. And so that's still a fair amount of money. And... EMF, though, is an enormous organization. And one of the things they can do by being a non-commercial station is that they can fundraise relentlessly for themselves on the air, which they do. Um, in general, uh, this is something which, again, we don't talk about very much, but religious broadcasting in terms of on-air fundraising does very well in the United States. Hmm. Uh, they don't struggle to the extent to which public and community broadcasting and college broadcasting wow, do. there's a podcast idea episode. <laughs> um, yeah, it would take a lot more work to kind of get to the bottom of all of the of that but that that's an important thing to note that they do indeed have that 5.6 million dollars uh to purchase the station and you know and of course it's conceivable and again we're just talking about hypotheticals now that wbru could could have decided to turn itself into a non-commercial station and operate as a non-commercial station and change the structure of what they do. I don't know how powerful the signal is, but I'm going to guess um, if they're selling it for $5.6 million, it's a fairly powerful signal. It's not a 100-watt or 200-watt station. Well, and there are there are college radio stations that have commercial licenses that operate as nonprofits and also fundraise. Yeah. So I know that's yeah. complicated. So all these things are not – yeah, well, the nature – yeah, you're not prevented from – You. I mean, you have a commercial license. You're frankly – you can air commercials or not air commercials. The FCC right. does not care. All it means is that should you want to air commercials, you may. If you have a non-commercial license, you are specifically prohibited from airing right. commercials. Well, yeah, guys, so actually having uh, a commercial license gives you a lot of freedom um, if you're a college radio station. But, but it also makes your your license a little bit more valuable on the open market. <laughs> okay, friends. Uh, Paul Reismandel and Jennifer Waits here on Radio Survivor on episode 100. And- Eight, 109? We're on 109. It is now uh, the time where I, Eric Klein, ask you the same question I ask you every time we talk <laughs> about a college radio station uh, being sold out from under the the people, the community that likes that station. All of a, it, you know, we're on a, episode 109, and I'm going to estimate that we have uh, told and retold this story on the podcast 13, 15, so I want times. But I want to actually problematize the question here. Sure. So <laughs> I, I am going to problematize it because... In this particular case, I don't think that this matches up to other college radio stations where principally the situation has been the – 
the university or college deciding to sell the license, or even there are situations like at Rice University a number of years ago where it was an independent nonprofit deciding to sell the license. But I oh, don't no, Rice, yeah, Rice was the university. The Rice was, was the university. Um, I'm sorry. It was Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt. I'm a sorry. Separate nonprofit. Right. In all of those cases, my understanding is that it was against the wishes not only of the community but of at least a significant part of the student body or the students involved. In this particular case, it seems as though uh, the students who are on the board of this organization that owns the station also decided that it was okay. And and so the circumstance in the loss of the community is a lot more like when – iHeartRadio or Cumulus decides to change the format or sell their station. Right. When your beloved classic rock well, station becomes a, uh, you know, an all sports station. Right. But I'm a dreamer and uh, I'm not, uh, I, I have dreams in my head, that kind of dreamer. And, you know, I can, I can dream up a scenario where the students who had the power to control the fate of this station uh, envisioned something uh, that would, that would, uh, you know, uh, put smiles on all of our faces, like a new college radio station. I think it would have been, I, I, you know, this is a case, and I'm sure there'll be many radio survivor listeners who will disagree with me vociferously and probably, um, you know, take great exception to what I'm going now to say. Now we're getting the emails. But I think in, in this particular case, in this sort of station, what would have been necessary is such a turnaround of the fundamental economics that I doubt the student's would be able to pull it off easily because sure. it would require probably years of investment and time and, and, and effort to restructure it that prop that it would, that it would be prohibitive because students generally speaking are only there for four years at best. Um, you know, in some cases a few more, but, but that would have been very difficult. And Jennifer may, may actually completely disagree with my assessment here, but this is a case in which I think that's a downside of it being a commercial license. And being uh, that kind of structure is that hill that they would have to get over uh, because of the very nature of all of the apparatus that, that that is put in place to support that. Jennifer, yeah, I think it's you know it's it's one of sort of the ongoing challenges of having stations at colleges where um, it's it's run by maybe just undergraduates, although they do have alumni input. But I think for students who are just there for four years and suddenly they're running this legacy commercial radio station, I think sometimes people don't really understand the bigger picture. Um, and, and, and it's hard to know, like in a situation like this, um, there, you know, there have been some pieces written about information that was provided about the economics and some people might disagree with that information. So I think it's complicated. Um, and I don't know how the decision was made. Um, and if it could have been changed or, you know, if, if people could have helped to, uh, change their mind about it, I, I don't know. And, but I do think commercial, commercial stations are a different case and, and there are different complexities to it. So I would agree with that. I go, I am going to put you on the spot one more time, Jennifer. Does this, is this a story that, uh, that signifies a trend that college radio is on the decline? No, <laughs> no, it does not. And I think, you know, I, sometimes I hate to even report on stories about stations being sold because then it might indicate that there's a trend or, you know, I think it's important to report about these stories, but, um, often those are the stories that, that we hear are when something dramatic happens and, and this isn't happening every day. Um, you know, we're hearing about it because it was in a big city and it's a legacy station, you know, that people have loved, uh, but it's not a sign of impending doom or death. You know, we continue to see new college radio stations appearing, um, with regularity. So, so yeah, even though we're, we're bringing some attention to it, I don't want that to signal to anybody that college radio is dying. Didn't you just report that, uh, some of the some of the resources that are coming from this sale are going to be invested in an online program. Oh, oh yeah. So, so they're, you know, the station will continue, um, as an online station with, with two different music streams. And they're also going to be doing podcasting and creating some new programming. So it's, 
you know, it, it, it's not a death of radio, um, even for this organization affiliated with Brown. It's, you know, they're, they're seeing it as taking that audio programming just into a new format, which is online only. And they're even looking for a terrestrial home for some of their programming. So they're exploring those options too, which, which may even happen at a new low power FM station. Um, Brown student radio uh, was operating as an online only student focused station, like a more, um, more of like a traditional college radio experience at Brown. And they applied for a low power FM license and have a construction permit for one. Oh, wow. So when that station eventually um, arrives on your terrestrial airwaves, it sounds like they've been in talks about possibly carrying some of the programming that was on WBRU. So we'll see. This is like, you know, just conversations at this point. The radio landscape is always changing. Yes. I, I mean, know. It's, it's complicated. I mean, 50% of new restaurants fail within a year. Nobody is saying restaurants are dying, right? And yes, putting new terrestrial stations on the air tends to be a little bit more difficult than starting a restaurant. But there are all sorts of small businesses and organizations that have tremendously high failure rates. And that does not contribute to this idea that that this sector is dying. And I think it's to be expected, right, that there will be some degree of churn in, in all sorts of radio stations and all sorts of community uh, media projects. And, you know, with regard to radio very specifically, I think we lament it because licenses are hard to get. And a license that goes from being owned by a college or a nonprofit to being owned by, uh, say, the Educational Media Foundation means the likelihood of that returning back to a community radio-like uh, or college radio-like programming format is very, very, very low. And K-Love is not local broadcasting. K-Love is satellite broadcasting. So what that is being replaced with is a not local satellite broadcasting empire that can be heard in just about every city in, in many, many small towns around the, the country. It's not Christian it, rock. It contemporary is yeah, Christian contemporary music. Christian music. It is not, you know, a force for, uh, for communities in, in that sort of way. Um, and, and, and that's unfortunate. I mean, in some ways, if, you know, I would have been more heartened to hear it had been sold to uh, a small local radio cluster. You know, maybe a local owner who owns two or three stations, um, if only because then the chances that it might represent the community better uh, would be there. And the same thing goes, you know, when non-commercial licenses get sold, Um, at least in my own opinion, when they get sold to a, a public radio concern. The likelihood of there being at least some local representation tends to be a little higher than when it gets sold to one of these large satellite radio satellite based, you know, uh Christian or religious broadcasting uh, organizations, uh, which are under no obligation and will do a minimum of of local uh, programming. Um, but, you know, I understand the lament, but I think it's just sort of – it's difficult to push back. It is the sort of environment that we're in. But going back to your original question, Eric, you know, I don't – given that, right – my original question is, is this a part of a trend? Or, or, or what, can, what can people do, yeah. right? What can people do? And the thing is, is that if you care about local community media, especially those owned by a college or, or community nonprofit, find out what is the status. Get involved. And then these sorts of organizations are likely to be way more transparent than any commercial operation. The opportunity to know, are they in good financial health, is is probably there. The opportunity to volunteer to help them to be in good financial health, to assist with fundraising, to assist with all sorts of other kinds of uh, services or needs is there much more so than it would be even to a tiny locally owned commercial radio station. Are you saying don't take your favorite community radio station for granted? Or, or favorite college radio station or favorite uh, commercial even, college even radio station little, for yeah. granted, 
right? It, to find out what can be done because I think so much of the time these things are below the surface. Not because people are hiding, not because people mean to be secret, but it's not the sort of thing that you broadcast if there are financial difficulties. <laughs> not if you're a healthy station. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, but as far as at culture. the same time, you know, going to see how can you help? What sort of help can there be? Certainly there's volunteering to be on air uh, and there's those sorts of things. But so often there's all sorts of other needs to be filled. Are you, do you know accounting? Maybe they could use help with that. Do you know fundraising? Maybe they could use help with that. Are you a lawyer? Maybe they could use help with that. Do you know uh, PR and publicity and marketing? <laughs> or, or just simply be a volunteer, right? There's all these different niches that can be filled. And maybe that's the kind of thing that before you start to think, oh my goodness, it's now the 11th hour. Because what we've learned is the 11th hour, 90% of the time is too late. Where you really want to be is before that that countdown clock starts ticking. So if there's a station you love and they are owned by a nonprofit of some sort, check in. That's it. Just check in. How can you help? How can you volunteer? And maybe it's great and maybe everything's good and all they really need is for you to uh, make that donation check every so often. But if there is something that you can help with, we certainly, uh, I think we would make that, that sort of uh, encouragement for you to to get involved. Jennifer, do you, would you add anything to that? I totally agree. And it's also making me think about um, some upcoming events where there are opportunities to engage with local stations, like uh, the grassroots radio conference is where you can see all of these sorts of things in action and maybe get to know people from local stations and offer assistance. And so talk a little bit more about the grassroots radio conference, because there's one coming up. Yeah, there's one coming up in Albany, New York, um, October 6th through 9th, and it's being hosted by a low-power FM station there, WCAALP, and I went most recently to a grassroots radio conference last year and in Hot Springs, Arkansas, um, and my experience last year was that it was very focused on low-power FM, which is um, something that has been a boon to the community radio world in the United States with so many new stations. So yeah, you came back from that conference and that was that's still one of my favorite episodes of the Radio Survivor program. We'll definitely have a link to that episode in the show notes because you brought back so many voices um, from that one uh, from that one new radio station that really uh, was really delightful. Yeah, and and people came from all over the country, uh, which will probably be the case will probably be the case for the next conference in Albany. And people came from established community radio stations. People came from stations that, you know, were just getting started or haven't gotten on the air yet. And it's a lot of sharing of knowledge. So some pragmatic sessions about, you know, things like how to get your radio stations, internet stream running, um, or, you know, details about equipment purchases or programming. Um, so a wide variety of sessions will happen again at the upcoming conference. And and really, like, um, you know, it's like a meetup for community radio people to learn from each other and get inspired. Great. And that's coming up uh, on October 6th through the 9th there in Albany. We'll, and we'll have more information about that. Um, in future episodes, as it's coming up as well, you can check out our show notes, radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. Uh, look for episode 109. And and the station that you visited, I think that, that you were excited about was, Hot Springs, was KUHSLP. Is that right? That's right. In Hot Springs, Arkansas. And it's a solar-powered low-power FM. Just stop. <laughs> and that was your radio station visit number 121. So we'll have that in the show notes as well for folks who want to go back and, wow. uh, and learn about uh, <laughs> learn about this particular really cool station. It's a, and it's a great opportunity uh, to learn more and to network and to find out more about... Yeah. Uh, Gosh, and I just remember, like, I'm sorry to interrupt, but like, it was just so wonderful, the voices that you brought of the new community DJs. I think it was people that hadn't yet had that opportunity to, to spin records at their radio station. This was something new to them, but they brought so much heart and memory and uh, passion to their to the to the song they were selecting that it was it was such a great um, 
such a great way to to brag about why community radio matters, like why you want somebody from the place where you live to pick songs to share with you. Uh, it it matters. It's it's actually a unique uh, little gift where you, when you turn on the radio, and it's it's not something that um, was so uh, rare, you know, thirty five years ago. Like there were lots of stations where lots of people who lived in your town picked music for you but um it has become rare and and more and more it's something you can only find on uh community and college stations well yeah and lpfms are hyper local so it's you really get these personal experiences and people talking to their community and having radio shows about very specific local music um and yeah i saw all of that in arkansas which was amazing and and Unfortunately, I don't think I'm going to make it to Albany. And as it gets closer, I'm I'm feeling pangs of regret, <laughs> um, especially now that we're talking about how great the conference was last year. But unfortunately, I can't be everywhere at once, mm. sadly. Yeah, it, I mean, we'd love to get our uh, conference team together <laughs> and be able to dispatch reporters and podcasters every one of these things. But we operate under a lot of the same uh, constraints that uh, any other uh, small organization does, especially like a college or community radio station. We could use your help. You can learn more at radiosurvivor.com slash support <laughs> if you want to help us attend and report on more events and more stations around the country and around the world. And also we have a great a celebration coming up also uh, beginning on October 6th, a celebration of College Radio. Jennifer, can you tell us about yes. that? Yeah, College Radio Day, which has been an annual day to celebrate College Radio, like you just said, and and different stations honor it in different ways. So, um, you know, stations might have special programming or maybe they'll do an event on campus and and then there's more national publicity surrounding College Radio Day, even international publicity, because there's a World College Radio Day component. So, you know, collectively, people are reminding each other about the value of college radio. And normally, there's some programming that the College Radio Day organization puts together and that can be aired by participating stations. So there may be some of that or stations might just do their own thing. It's, it's a super flexible day and stations can honor it in any way that they wish. But we want to make sure we, we mention it, made note of it. What day is October it? 6th. October 6th. October 6th. 2017, College Radio Day. So listen to your favorite college radio station or uh, spin around the virtual dial online and catch uh, great college radio from around the country and around the world. And uh, we'll, we'll have more about this on a future episode as we get closer uh, to the big day, uh, College Radio Day. It's, it's wonderful. Also, I know coming up actually uh, on September 30th, it's International Podcasting Day. Oh, wow. Uh, that is something which has been celebrated for several years now. Um, I don't, we have, we're caught a little flat footed. I don't think we have anything ready to go to celebrate that here at Radio Survivor. <laughs> we need to get on that. But we'll, we'll make note of it at the, at the very least. Um, note it's passing. It note that it is happening. Uh, the International Podcast Day. It only just occurred to me now that we were talking about college radio day. It's wonderful that all these things do get their day and get to be celebrated, sort of like National Radio Day, which, uh, which is in, in August uh, here in the United States. On August 20th, that is. Um, that we don't forget about these great platforms and, and ways that we, that we end up communicating with each other, that in, that. I think enrich our lives. I know it enriches my life to have podcasting and college radio and community radio there for me to enjoy, but also learn about uh, new culture, new ideas, and news information that I w simply would not be exposed to. I don't think you're alone in the in having a value. Oh really? Of, uh, <laughs> oh really? In, I thought I was out here in the desert all yeah. by myself. I think other people uh, like yeah. radio. Wow. <laughs> That's total news to me. Would it be the Razan debt of this very, <laughs> of this very <laughs> radio show, Radio Survivor? Yeah, thank you to, for listening to Radio <laughs> Survivor today, everybody. We had fun. It was good to get the the band back together again one more time. And, and you've yeah. got one more thing to tell us about coming up in November. Uh, it is We're not an, done. It is the uh, yes. It's something that you are the, a representative to Jennifer. 
Yeah, so I will be traveling in November to the Radio Preservation Task Force Conference in Washington, D.C. It's the second conference that this group has held. I'm I'm a research associate on the task force and co-chair of the College Community and Educational Radio Caucus, which I always have to laugh. It's such a mouthful. Um, so I'm sort of a voice of college and community and educational radio in this group. And um, the conference is going to be November 2nd through 4th at the Library of Congress um, and a couple other venues in the D.C. area. And it's going to be an amazing confab of people who are passionate about radio history and radio preservation. And leading up to it, I, I want to make a plug. I'm I'm still working on signing up college radio stations in particular um, as affiliate collections of the Radio Preservation Task Force. And what it simply means is that the task force is trying to find out where collections of radio mm. materials live across the country. So it, it's basically a list so that scholars, researchers can find material related to their area of study. So if college radio stations would like to sign up, they can contact me even through Radio Survivor is fine. Jennifer at radiosurvivor.com. And, and what about community stations or other sorts of uh, radio stations? I mean, yeah, anybody who has a collection. Right now, it's sort of my mission to focus on college radio stations, but other collections are also yeah. of great interest. And and it doesn't have to be at a station. I think the first phase, we were focusing on archives within universities. And, and right now, a team of us is looking at radio stations because we know there are a lot of collections housed at radio stations. Well, Jennifer, I know we're running out of time here on this episode, but I have to confess and or uh, point a finger at you because um, this, is, you know, this is an episode where we're teasing a lot of things that are going to happen in the future on the podcast. And I, I think it's time for me to share with the uh, listener that I came across a personal collection of a... Um, of a, a real labor activist here in Portland who had passed away and at his estate sale, he had box upon box upon box upon box upon box of cassette tapes that were clearly recorded all over, including off of the radio. Oh, wow. And uh, I know that they date back um, at least to the 80s. It looks like I, and I did look through the labels. Uh, it's been actually more than my heart can handle to really examine them as closely All right, Eric, as I'm coming to. over to your house and we're going through this <laughs> but together. But it's coming. And I do know that well, there are some archives of community radio uh, there in those cassette tapes. So you've you've infected me with a passion <laughs> for preservation. Well, and I have to point out that friend of the friend of radio survivor John Anderson is um, I believe chair of the Labor Radio Caucus on the yeah. task force. Oh, so he would be he particularly <gasps> interested. <laughs> all right. All of this is to come. Yeah. Nerd alert. <laughs> I guess, I, you know, I should point out that the point being is that the, these cassette tapes might very well be the only copies of these programs uh, still in existence. It's so hard to know what it's was possible. ephemeral, especially when, when community radio, where there's so many hours of programming being produced, uh, you know, it seems simple that it would all be recorded, but especially as we go back 20 or 30 years, it might have been even very expensive. If you know anything about any of these collections, uh, drop us a line, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Of course, we want to know anything that you'd like to hear more about in the show, or if you have any comments about what you've heard, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. As we mentioned, we are a listener and reader-supported enterprise. To learn more about how you can support us, go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. Thank you so much, Eric and Jennifer, for joining on this episode. And thank you to everyone for spending another hour with us. We really appreciate your time. Hey, thank you. Thanks. I, I have a I want to do an after dark right here with the for the podcast right, only so audience. Okay. Uh I am asking for help from the audience. I yeah. recorded an ep- I recorded an entire interview for Radio Survivor. We need like a sound effect, a stinger for after dark crickets. Crickets yeah. going. Well, uh, well, I no, will. how about from like um you know, it's like Peach Pit after dark, something from 90210. <laughs> I can definitely uh pull some crickets. It's it's uh, apropos of this of this uh, topic because I interviewed a I, I was struggling earlier to come up with a job title for this artist. He records documentary audio and he does it uh, as well as anyone on earth with equipment that he knows how to use extremely well. Um, I stumbled upon his work on the website freesound.org 
which is another um, uh, can of worms, a great topic for a Radio Survivor audience. Uh, free Sound is a repository of free to use sounds. An amazing resource for you know anybody who's doing podcasting, either fictional or um, creative. And uh, this one artist, Felix Bloom is his name, has been uploading to the public domain, Creative Commons Zero, so they can be used in any project, even for-profit projects. Um, just a library of sounds that are so incredible. Uh, lots of ambience and landscapes. So I'm sure it's easy to find crickets in the work that he's put up there. Uh, and so I reached out to him, and he was very uh, welcoming to the idea of being interviewed for the podcast, but uh, would not conduct that interview in English. So I made arrangements. I conducted the interview in Spanish, a language of which I'm, uh, I think I think I might have even gotten a D in high school Spanish, so I know it, but uh, badly. And we conducted an hour-long interview in Spanish, and now I need to translate it. I need to transcribe it, and I need to translate it. And if anybody uh, who listens to Radio Survivor wants wants to help, wants to be oh, a behind-the-scenes yeah. be uh, helper, uh, even, even to offer me uh, solutions that might even cost money. The goal is to not, uh, not go out of pocket on this episode of Radio Survivor. I don't know. Yeah, if anyone think- can help, that would be great. Send us a drop us a line for real yeah. podcast at radiosurvivor.com. If you can transcribe Spanish or, or if you want to be available to help translate it after, the, after we get a transcription. Yeah, I feel like there are some tools. I feel like I heard rumors of some tools that can help you do that too. There, there are. They exist. Um, they are expensive. Yeah. <laughs> um, that is uh, sort of the rub. Is that uh, they are expensive, and to doubly kind of go from uh, translate and transcribe ups the cost. And it may be trivial for some organizations, a little less trivial for us. I I was fantasizing about going out of pocket. Uh, because I want this to happen because it was such a delightful interview and I only barely had an opportunity to eavesdrop on it because my Spanish skills are so uh, thin. But even with the Spanish that I have, eavesdropping on this interview that I that I put together between Felix Bloom and a friend of mine who's Colombian was so uh, thrilling because learning about why this particular sound artist is motivated to do the work that he does, for, you know, all for the love of of the sound that goes into people's headphones and then uh, why he gives it away. He puts it in the public domain. Um, and then, you know, I'll, I'm going to mix a little bit of it in right here just to prove to you why I'm so passionate about it. The, the, the variety of uh, world sounds that he puts up because he's also, a, you know, it turns out that his job is to record sounds for documentaries. And so he gets hired and travels uh, around Latin America and Europe uh, recording sounds and then in his free time he just keeps the microphone on so it's just landscapes from all over the world uh, shared with you for your ears for free um, his most popular uh, track is a lightning storm a thunderstorm on SoundCloud does very well one of my favorites is a uh, is a chorus of boat horns I can't remember what coastal, it might have been on the coast of Chile, it might have been somewhere else. Just all these boat horns uh, singing in, in dissonant harmonies. Really incredible stuff. Cool. Yeah, you'll, you'll dig it. You should use it anytime you need something in the background of your radio show. That's right, it reminds me of my friend Ed's show that we talked about a few episodes ago. Uh, because he used all these ambient sounds. Yeah. And he recorded himself walking around with his... Uh, pre-Walkman portable right. tape recorder <laughs> yeah, back, Felix back Bloom, in the 80s. Felix Bloom is recording these tracks in in stereo with the, one of them dead cat, you know, the big yeah. fuzzies. Uh, it's really it's That's really what my amazing. friend Ed eventually graduated to in the digital area, of okay. course, yeah. you know, but originally he was doing that in the, in the 80s, in the early 80s and late 70s, uh, which he eventually put to use on his radio show. Jungles, meadows. Nightscapes. There's somebody, there's an archivist Cities. or a librarian, I think in Britain, whose whole job is archiving nature sounds. Right. I thought that was like the coolest job ever. Yeah, no, and there is an environmental aspect to this because we know that um, as landscapes change, they're not going to sound the same. So it's a, it's a really interesting thing to think that, uh, you know, somebody's been traveling around the world in the, in the early part of the 21st century and really recording these uh, 
lovingly captured uh, soundscapes um, might even have a contribution to the to future to future uh, archaeologists, sound archaeologists. Um, I just made that up off the top of my head, but I'm gonna go with it. Yeah. All right. Well, Neat. let us know. For Can sharing. you lend us a hand? Oh yeah, yo. How are they gonna reach out to us? Podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Or just stay tuned. I'll get it done somehow. <laughs> well, if you can help, we will have to get your yeah. help. Yes, you know, please there, help. There we go. You'll, you'll, get, you'll hear it much sooner. And we'll certainly say thank you at the very least. Oh, yeah. Not even. Not even at the, the very, very least, least. We'll, send, we'll say thank you. All right. Thanks for sticking around for the After Dark. Yeah. Thank <laughs> All you. right. Thanks for indulging thanks. me, friends. Bye.